The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Father William Jenkins, the priest in charge at Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. And as usual, I'm talking about topics that come up from time to time and uh, hopefully giving some interesting and hopefully helpful thoughts on the subject. In this case, this is the second installment of the program on modest dress. A number of mothers have come to me uh, over the years and uh, have asked me to give them some ideas as to what they can, how they can answer questions that their children ask them, especially their, their daughters, and especially their older daughters, with regard to what is proper clothing, modest clothing to wear for a young lady in the world today. Considering the pressures of society and their peer group, to dress immodestly, girls have a lot of questions today. And uh, some of those are very good questions. Uh, some of the questions need to be corrected because the questions are false questions. And so I thought it would be a good idea to make a, a couple of programs on this very subject and respond to some of the questions the mothers themselves have asked me. And I have that list here. I covered the first several questions in the previous video program. I thought I would pick up where we'd left off. A uh, question down the list uh, is as follows. My college-aged daughter says her pants aren't as tight as most girls. But most all pants these days are tight, if not only in the top portion, but in the leg also. Just because they may be a little less tight than the next gals, they are still form-fitting. Well... Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and as far as the church is concerned, this question, again, is a bit of a false question. They say that uh, her pants aren't as tight as others. I'm asking why she's wearing pants at all. Um, it's not a matter of whether you're wearing tight pants or loose pants. If you're a girl, you're wearing men's clothing, but it's traditionally understood to be men's clothing. Now... <clears throat> I know that uh, girls don't like to hear this, and in fact, often their mothers and even their grandmothers don't like to hear this. But it is a fact. Whenever you had the, the unisex idea come in back in the 60s and 70s, that's the 1960s and 1970s, the, the point was to always get the men dressing like the women and the women dressing like the men. Now, when I say the men dressing like the women, what I'm talking about is long hair, right? and uh, getting them all in the bell-bottom jeans that are tight-fitting and so on, to have the same fashion. <clears throat> of course, getting the girls in pants was something that was done by the socialists and communists. But if you look back to the 1920s and 30s already in Soviet Russia, the Bolsheviks were very intent on getting women dressing the same as men, even if they're wearing the same drab uh, comrade uniform in the Soviet Union, the budding Soviet Union, and in communist China, too. The idea was to get the men and the women dressing the same. 
And the idea was basically to, to break down the distinction between the two genders. Uh, we see the outcome of that in, in today, and we can't be blind to the fact that uh, what we see today, the, the not only blurring the lines between the genders, the sexes as they like to call them, <clears throat> but erasing the lines so that there is no line, that one can just cross over from one to the other. It's a matter of surgery and chemicals and so on. And uh, there is no real distinction, honestly, between male and female. This is diabolical. We see the result of it today, and I'm sure many of our men and girls uh, would recognize there's something really sinister and very perverted about this, but they don't want to face the fact that part of the program leading us to this point has been getting the women into pants. <clears throat> In fact, when uh, during the war, women had to go into our American factories in order to produce armaments and uh, weaponry and so on uh, for, uh, for the war effort, taking over what had been traditionally men's jobs in the factories and so on. Um, they began wearing pants at that time. And, um, but this was uh, a very a sad, unusual circumstance. Our nation was at war. The women were being called upon to, to uh, work in places that uh, they ordinarily would not have worked in, but for the fact that they had to help with the war effort. But now, uh, coming out of that, we considered that standard operating procedure and fashion that women began to socially wear pants. And the result of that was that men began to treat them just like one of the guys, and the women began to act just like one of the guys. And there was not that distinction that uh, was necessary to maintain the proper respect and the proper decorum. Uh, if, if men begin to think of women as just one of the guys, uh, just like they would one of their drinking buddies or one of their bowling buddies, uh, the respect is already broken down, breaking down. And, uh, you know, you read reports coming back from communist China. Um, in the 1950s, of the communist Chinese efforts to break down the family. Again, the effort was there to separate the families. At first, uh, they would uh, read a propaganda a forced to a forced audience. People were compelled uh, to be present for the reading out loud in every village of China, the communist propaganda. And if they weren't there, uh, then in fact, every family had to be represented there or there would be a heavy fine imposed upon them. And in those days in villages in China, to be fined uh, so many pounds of rice, that was a big fine. Uh, they measured the pounds of rice they would need to feed their family every day. And if they were fined a certain amount of rice, they could not feed their families. And so families were compelled to send the representative to listen to the communist Chinese propaganda, read aloud to every family in the village in China, uh, every day, um, even if only through one representative. But then, of course, uh, when the propaganda wasn't getting through, uh, they found other ways to make sure it got through. And so missionaries tell us that they actually impounded uh, the fathers, and impounded the mothers, and impounded the children in three separate uh, gulags on the outskirts of the village. 
and uh, the fathers and mothers were allowed to get together for 15 minutes a week to uh, be husband and wife. And the children were being were taken away from the parents and sequestered from them so they would not have this parental guidance, but neither would they have that parental uh, affection, uh, their, their, their devotion to their family and to their elders. They were trying to break down the Chinese family. And the communists uh, saw that the, the Chinese family unit as their great obstacle to gaining absolute loyalty of each and every single Chinese uh, members of Chinese society to the party. Absolute loyal and question loyalty had to be directed to the Communist Party. And so family loyal had, loyalty had to be destroyed. This is all part of the big picture here, of the trying, the effort to break down the respect between man and woman, husband and wife, father and mother. And um, they actually, the, the clothes they got them to wear was a big step in that direction. Even back during the so-called unisex revolution back in the 60s and 70s, you're going to hear stories about uh, fellows who actually would uh, see a, a woman pass with long flowing hair and they'd uh, realize that they were admiring the figure when they turned around of a bearded man. And uh, this was breaking down some serious barriers in their minds here. This was not an accident. Uh... Not at all. It was all part of a social program mapped out by the communists, um, by the socialists, by the cultural Marxists to destroy the morality of our country so that our country would have no moral uh, strength to resist their ideology of communism and socialism. We have to realize where this is coming from. It's not coming from heaven. It's coming from hell. And uh, whether we like it or not, whether it's uh, inconvenient or not, we have to face the fact what we're dealing with here. So already, women wearing pants was part of the program um, to break down the distinction between male and female and uh, to break down the feminine and, uh, and also to get men to do things and wear things that would break down their masculinity too at the same time. And... Uh, the uh, cultural Marxists have been extremely successful, much to our detriment. So already wearing the pants is not, is not right there. So uh, I would say as soon as we're talking about how, how tight or how loose a girl's pants should be, we're, we're talking about the wrong things. We're in the wrong field already. But I would say this, just to the question that is asked here, about whether pants are too tight as most girls or not as tight. And this is a, an answer that a, a young girl, uh, well, she refers to her here college-age daughter, but you might also get teenage daughters doing this, perhaps not your eight, nine-year-olds, but your teenage daughters might be saying, well, my pants are not as tight as most of the other girls, as an excuse why her pants are okay, relative to what the other girls are wearing. Now, I've already mentioned this before. I think I brought this up in the last video. When does that become the standard of morality? That <clears throat> what I'm doing is not as bad as what the others are doing. I would say, how does that apply? What, what parent would ever allow that, that thinking to go on in their children's mind? 
I mean, imagine if your son or your daughter said, well, I, I'm honest because I don't lie as much as the others do. It doesn't make you honest just because you don't lie as much as other people. It doesn't make you honest just because you don't steal as much as other people do. It doesn't uh, make you, have you give you a clean mouth because you don't curse and swear as much as other people do. And um, it certainly doesn't make you clean because you're not as dirty as other people are. There's no comparison like that. Uh, go right on down the line in, in terms of uh, the virtues that we know. Uh, you're not pure of heart just because you're not as impure in your thoughts and words and actions as the next person. That doesn't make you pure. Uh, and the patient, it doesn't make you patient if your your temper is less explosive than the other people. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a perverted way of thinking in here that we have to address, and you as parents have to address this idea that your kids are going to compare themselves to what the others are doing and say, well, if I'm not as bad as they are, then I must be good. <clears throat> because that is not the way to look at it at all. And you've got to cure them of that misconception. Make it clear to them that it doesn't work in any other category, and it certainly doesn't work in this. I don't even don't even think like that, let alone bring it up to me. Comparing what you're wearing to somebody what somebody else is wearing and tell me it's not as bad as what the other person is wearing. Because no matter what you're wearing or not wearing, there's always somebody you can compare yourself to favorably that has nothing to do with it. If you're not modest, you're not modest, period. Uh, regardless of what anybody else is wearing. And the parents have to make the children understand that. <clears throat> there's an objective standard for modesty. <clears throat> And um, the girls have to go with an objective standard, standard rather than just the relative standard of modesty. Um, and this lady is right when she says most all pants these days are tight, if not only in the top portion, but in the leg also. Of course, I'm saying that the pants, whether tight or loose, are not fit for girls, period. Now listen, there are things that girls do, do these days and, and can do that are legitimate things to do. Going skiing, for example. Girls ordinarily would not go skiing in a skirt. That would be less modest than going skiing in a in a, uh, a pair of uh, ski bibs. Um, and uh, skydiving. I mean, sometimes you hear about the girls going skydiving. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. Obviously, they wouldn't wear a skirt while they were going skydiving. <clears throat> there might be a handful of other activities that they would be more modest wearing uh, loose form of uh, trousers or bloomers or whatever they would call them. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I'm talking about socially speaking and social occasions for social purposes. It is just not suitable for women to be wearing pants. Um, so this lady ends by saying whether they're a little less tight than what other girls are wearing, they're still form fitting. And that's the point with pants. They are form fitting. And uh, they accentuate certain things in a girl's form that should not be accentuated. So, anyway, I'll, I'll leave that there. Please be very careful about that. And again, when you, take a, when you hear a, a false question from your daughter, straighten out the question first, and then answer the right question. And uh, then another question here. Daughter is saying wearing skirts regularly is uncomfortable, or that they can't do anything in a skirt. And uh, <clears throat> this particular lady mentions that her husband 
was laid up for a while and he actually had a nurse uh, taking care of him after his surgery. And she actually wore a long, full skirt, a very fashionable skirt. <clears throat> he complimented her and he said she was actually the best nurse of the lot that were taking care of him. And she was able to do everything that she was required to do as a nurse very easily in this long, full, elegant skirt that she was wearing. <clears throat> so um, she's pointing out here, uh, just a personal example, that the, the long, full skirt was no hindrance uh, there in, in the nursing duties. But the fact is that when girls complain that wearing skirts, it kind of can restrict them. Well, maybe it restricts them from things that they shouldn't be doing anyway. <clears throat> but generally speaking, I think what they're talking about is skirts that are already too tight. I mean, nowadays, the skirts that the girls are wearing <clears throat> basically are also somewhat form-fitting. Uh, they're tight, and one of the evidence, the pieces of evidence that the skirts are too tight anyway is they can't walk properly in them unless they have a slit down the side. Any skirt <clears throat> with a hemline that is too restrictive, or a, a, uh, e e even not the, just the, the, the skirt itself, the fabric of the skirt wrapped around their bodies, any skirt like that that is so restrictive that they, it hampers their steps, and they have to basically tiptoe along, as it were, with, unless they put a, a slit up the side of it, that skirt is already too long. That skirt is already too narrow. It's already too tight. And uh, I say this generally speaking. If a skirt needs a slit, it shouldn't be <clears throat> worn. It is already too tight. And that is why it is so restrictive. That is why it is so uncomfortable. A longer, fuller skirt is not something that is restrictive. And it does allow freedom of movement. So to say that they can't do anything in a long, full skirt just isn't true. If they're talking about being restricted in a skirt and it restricts their movement so that they can't do, quote-unquote, anything, as this one did, then they're already telling you the skirts they're wearing have something wrong with them. They're just too narrow. So tell them to wear a long, full skirt, they won't have that problem. Another point that is made, suggestion that maybe our girls uh, have to want to dress to a certain standard. In other words, we shouldn't make them dress to a certain standard, but uh, we have to get them to want to do so of their own accord. And this woman asks, isn't it our responsibility to require them to do so, uh, and if so, at what age or stage of life is it relevant for us to require them to do so? Well, again, I'd say as long as you're their parents, as long as you are their mother, as long as you are their father, you have a responsibility to say to them, this is right and this is wrong. You have a responsibility to teach them. When you are no longer their mother, <clears throat> no longer their father, when they are no longer your, your daughters or your sons, then, okay, you don't necessarily have a strict responsibility to tell them right from wrong. But if you are in your 90s and you have a 70-year-old daughter who is doing something that is wrong, sinful, improper, then if you care about their soul and you still consider yourself their mother and they still consider themselves your daughter, you should tell them, hey, I think you're doing something wrong. I'm, I'm concerned about this. I still love you. 
and you're still my daughter, no matter how old we get. And I still have a responsibility before God. Now remember, you can't always command them. As long as they are in your home and your dependence, you certainly can command them what to wear and what not to wear. And as long as you have that power and that authority to do so, you have the responsibility to do so. So you may have a 25-year-old daughter living in your home with your feet, her feet under your table, uh, sleeping in a bedroom in your home, and you're providing the electricity and the water and so on. Um, and that daughter may say, well, I'm grown up now. I'm, I'm a woman and I don't have to listen to you. And I say, well, you can tell them this. Look, uh, it's true, you've reached your majority before the law of man. But the fact is, you are still a dependent of mine. And as long as you're here in my house, these are my standards and I expect you to follow them. Especially if they affect your younger brothers and sisters and you're setting an example for them, then I have to insist that you living here with them, you have to set this example and follow this standard because that's, that's my standard. This is our family standards. Um, so um, I'd say if you, uh, if you have a child of any age who is dependent upon you and is interacting with your family, you should have a certain say in the standards. And, uh, you know, they might say, well, I don't have to do what you say now because I'm older. And you might say, well, I don't have to have you living under my roof either. <laughs> you should go out and find your own place and get your own job and take care of yourself. But if you are interacting with your brothers and sisters, and I'm still responsible for them and the example that you set for them is, and, and uh, let's say, uh, contradicting my standards, I have an obligation to tell you, no, you cannot do that here. Um, if you don't do that, okay, if your parents don't do that, then basically you're sending a very bad signal. signal. <clears throat> you're sending a very bad signal to the older child that <clears throat> when they reach a certain point, then it, it doesn't matter anymore. If you don't bring it up to them after that because you're afraid and you say, well, they've reached their majority here, so I have nothing more to say about it, the signal you're sending is that, according to the moral law, it doesn't matter anymore because they've reached the age of 21. Legally, they're, they're adults. And that's like the cutoff age for your responsibility as their parent. Well, there is no cutoff age like that. For the moral law, there is no cutoff age of that responsibility. <clears throat> so just because you can't legally tell them you have to wear this or, or do that, Nowadays, even at the age of the children are three or four years old, uh, you hardly have any authority to tell them what to do anymore. Uh, the way things are going in the uh, in the world and in our country, but the fact is, your voice is still extremely important for your own conscience's sake, but for theirs too, because they have to know that was wrong when they were fifteen is wrong when they're twenty-five, and it's still wrong when they're thirty-five and forty-five. And that you haven't just relaxed your standards or, or surrendered, given them up entirely, just because they've reached a certain age. Not only if you are silent about this, their dress, when they're older, are you sending them the wrong message? You're teaching them the wrong thing. Either that you didn't mean it or it doesn't apply to them anymore. But you're sending the wrong message to their younger siblings, too. You're telling the younger siblings 
well, put up with this for a while, but when you reach a certain age, you too will be free of all of this, and you can do whatever you want, and mom and dad have nothing more to say about it. That's a very big mistake. You must not send that message to your younger, younger siblings. <clears throat> and uh, certainly, uh, to send that message to their friends and so on, it would be wrong to uh, let that happen. So please, uh, parents, realize that as long as your children are dependent on you, especially as long as they have an influence on the other children in your family, you really do have to uh, be very clear about this is right, this is wrong, this is acceptable, this is not acceptable, and then you have to enforce it, obviously, in a reasonable way. All of these matters of enforcement, by the way, when it comes to matters of dress, have to follow prudence, okay? Prudence is the highest of the moral virtues. You have the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. These are the virtues that are called theological because they are directly about and referred to God, and they have to be engendered in the soul by the, by the grace of God. These are not virtues that we can simply conjure up by willing them to be. God has to give them as a grace, as a gift. <clears throat> but also, after the faith, virtues of faith and hope and charity, you have the moral virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. You remember learning about all this when you went to Catholic school, when you studied catechism. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, the moral virtues, <clears throat> are moral virtues because they have to do with the mores, the the behavior of people, putting things into practice, putting your faith into practice, putting your hope into practice, putting your charity into practice. Practicing the theological virtues in the world involves prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Now the highest, and by the way, all the other virtues, honesty and piety and all the rest, they are all parts of these four moral virtues. <clears throat> now these four moral virtues can be acquired and or infused. Now, I don't mean to confuse you here, but I'll explain that a little bit. An atheist can tell the truth. An atheist can be honest. That's part of justice. An atheist doesn't have to be a drunkard. He can be abstemious. He can be controlled in what he eats and what he drinks. That's part of temperance. An atheist can be brave. A pagan can be brave. There are many examples in history, of brave pagans. We even admire their courage. That's part of fortitude. They can acquire these virtues by striving for them and realizing this is part of uh, the nobility of a character. And so they may acquire these virtues because they admire those who have them, because they believe that this is what makes them... Uh, uh, noble and nobler, perhaps, than other men, uh, maybe even makes them great in their own eyes and the eyes of others. The difference, though, is this, that uh, someone who's an atheist or a pagan does not acquire these virtues out of love for God because they do not have faith and hope and love for God to inspire them. So the motive for which they acquire these virtues and work in these virtues is not a supernatural motive, it is a natural motive. Only uh, practicing these virtues out of love for God makes them supernatural. And so, even though uh, pagans and atheists can be honest and 
even to a fault perhaps, and brave and temperate, practicing these virtues does not gain them supernatural merit. They cannot save their souls purely doing these things for natural motives. But these virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance can also be infused. And that is for those who have uh, a love for God and will practice the virtues out of love for God, they can appeal to God himself to give these virtues, infuse them into the soul. They're, they're therefore not just a matter of human effort to acquire them. Now we have the supernatural power of God's grace coming into the soul and powering the prudence and the justice and the fortitude and the temperance and giving them a motive which raises them above all human motives, <clears throat> now we are prudent out of love for God. We practice prudence out of love for God, and the same with justice. We are just, we are honest, out of our love for God, as a service to Almighty God. <clears throat> the same with fortitude and temperance. And when we practice these virtues out of love for God, that makes them supernaturally powerful. That gives them a supernatural character, that no purely natural motive can, can have. And so uh, we are operating now with the actual grace of the Holy Ghost in the soul to perfect these virtues in our souls. You, <coughs> Catholics there, you uh, have this actual grace to support you. You, in the state of grace, with the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, you can inspire these virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance with a supernatural power from God. <clears throat> and that means when you approach this matter of modesty and dress for yourself or your children, you can practice prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance for a supernatural reason and be motivated by a love for God. In, uh, in, in instructing your children about what modesty is. Now, temperance applies here, of course, because there's a certain amount of self-denial that is required to dress modestly. Uh, there are certain gratifications that come from dressing immodestly uh, that one has to forego. And one has to discipline oneself and be able to say no to oneself. There's a certain amount of temperance that needs to be applied here in modest dress, certainly. There's a certain amount of courage, even, that needs to be applied in modest dress. <clears throat> the courage of a young girl <clears throat> to be different. And after all, I mean, your parents have to train your children that, that there is a need, an absolute need for them to be willing to be different. That the standard of their life is not what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is saying, what everybody else is wearing. But that they have to judge things according to what is right and wrong and follow God and be faithful to him, regardless of what their peers are doing or saying or wearing. <clears throat> and so this requires a certain amount of courage. And if necessary, even to expose oneself to a certain amount of uh, kidding, ribbing, ridicule, or even ostracism, if that's what it takes. If it's a matter of being faithful to God and accepting that, then, I mean, what kind of martyrs uh, are there ever going to be if we tell the kids, uh, well, you know, don't, uh, don't 
make waves and whatever you do, we don't stand out for any reason. Um, <clears throat> certainly not for that reason. You have to blend in with the crowd, don't you? Go along to get along. That's your standard? That isn't our standard. It better not be. If it is, your children will go to hell. So you have to teach them right away. <clears throat> From the earliest years, they have to do the right thing regardless. Uh, if it subjects them to ridicule or even persecution. And certainly in matters of dress, in the modern world, that is extremely necessary. It's in, it is indispensable that in that they be able to stand up for what is right and refuse to have the attitude, well, gee, if I wear this, um, they're going to make fun of me and I'm going to stick out uh, like a, a sore thumb? No, maybe like a healthy thumb. Um... <clears throat> So, um, it does take a certain amount of courage, but that courage has to be motivated by a love for God. In your children, and hopefully you teach your children enough love for God that they can have that courage, but you too, you too need that courage, you as parents, because you have to be able to brave the withering blast of, of dis dissatisfaction of your children who will not like what you're saying. I mean, look at our Lord, look what he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who uh, <clears throat> were so angry at what he told them because it was the truth that they began to plot his death. You do not have to worry about anything like that uh, facing the uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, what our Lord had to face for you um, <clears throat> to face the dissatisfaction of your children to uh, stand up for what is right. Well, if you can't do that, how we can expect your children to do that? If you can't even do that with your children, how do you expect your children to be able to do that with their peers? How do you expect them to be able to do that with their <clears throat> their mates someday to stand up for what is right, their boyfriends and girlfriends? And how do you expect them to stand up to their own children and teach their children what is right? If you cannot do that for your children now, why on earth should you have any right to expect that your children will ever be able to do that? You have to show them how to do that in a just and prudent way. And this takes us to the matter of justice. <clears throat> when you enforce the rules of modesty with your children, <clears throat> you have to do it in, in a just way. And that means you have to do it in a consistent sort of way. <clears throat> you can't be enforcing it for one and not the other. You can't be haphazard about it and give it according to mood. You have to follow certain principles that are always in place, and they have to be applied consistently, not arbitrarily, not according to mood or temperament or circumstances, uh, what you're afraid of, the consequences you're afraid of. Um, so this is one thing the children latch on to right away. This is one of the things they object to. If they see the rules are applied in their minds unfairly, which means inconsistently and unjustly from one to the other, they will latch on to that and they will make hay out of that and accuse you of uh, singling them out or whatever. So justice is a very big part of enforcing these matter, this matter of modesty. Um, if you have certain principles, you have to be true to those principles. and You can't adjust them uh, from one person to the next, one situation to the next. The principles are what they are. And they have to be the Catholic principles. So anyway, justice is necessary here. There are other things involving justice and this particular problem, but I, I could uh, actually do a, another entire program on that subject, so I'm not going to do that now. I'm just trying to point out, though, that the moral virtues all come into play here when it's a matter of 
what you teach your children about modest dress and what you require of them. And of course, I've been working my way up from temperance to fortitude to justice and now to the first of the moral virtues, prudence. <clears throat> prudence has to govern everything. What does it mean? Well, prudence is an act of the intelligence and reason which enables you to understand and see clearly <clears throat> what you can do and say, what action you can take, what words you can say, what instruction you can give that will do the good and not do the harm. In virtually everything, every situation that presents itself to us, we have choices to make about how we respond to them. And the second rule for prudence is this, the second rule. If there's anything you can do or say, if there's any action you can take, or instruction you can give that has a reasonable expectation of making the situation better, then by all means go ahead and do and say what you think will actually produce some good results. That's the second rule. The problem is, with the second rule, that there are situations where we might be not be able to think of anything we can do or say that we reasonably expect will make things better. Um, we might be really perplexed and not know what to say or how to say it, what to do or how to do it that would, we think, really make things better. So that's why we have the first rule. The first rule is whatever you do, whatever you say, don't make things worse. Because in those situations where you might not be able to think of a single thing to say that could make things better, or a single thing to do to improve the situation, we can generally think of a hundred things to say or do that can make things worse. That's usually easy to find. And so sometimes it's very difficult to restrain ourselves from reacting out of anger and uh, reacting... In, in such a way that it, it, it actually appeals to pride and awakens the anger of the other person rather than appealing to the good that is in them to enable them to think and see and understand clearly and to will to do what is right. This is the hardest part of being a parent, of course, <clears throat> to get past your children's weaknesses to their strengths appeal to the, what is good in them and the strengths that are there because there are good, there's good and strength in them. You put it there. You taught them. And you know where their strengths are. You know where their weaknesses are. And when you appeal to uh, something good that you want to get them to do and appreciate and understand, you have to appeal to what is good in them to get them to strengthen where the, what the weaknesses are. That's very difficult to do. So, you don't necessarily want to have a knockdown drag out with your children over the matter of modesty, but you shouldn't have to do that if you've been teaching them properly all along <clears throat> to respect you, to listen to you. <clears throat> if you've raised them in a home where reason, not, not rage, rules the home, <clears throat> if you've taught them Slowly, over the years, you've taught them by your example, by your wisdom, to think things through, not just default to their feelings, 
if you talk to them about thinking in terms of reality and not just how they feel about reality, then you can, you can actually talk to your children. And even if they may not like what you have to say, uh, they will hear you and they will understand. And in the course of uh, probably uh, a, a time, they will come to appreciate. But they will always love you. And no matter how upset they may be, that will always rise to the top. That if you taught them love and respect and have their love and respect, they will always ultimately come to love it, to respond out of love and respect for you. Even if you're telling them something they don't necessarily want to hear. So prudence is the virtue that tells you how to approach them, how to speak to them, not only what to say, but how to say it. What to do, but how to do it. All too many people use that as an excuse, though, to say, well, it would be imprudent for me to act on this because it might upset them. And they're using cowardice as an excuse, hiding behind uh, the facade of prudence. But, you know, you parents, again, uh, you must take a stand on this for your children's sake. And there's a big difference between taking a stand because you personally are outraged or you taking a stand in principle out of love. Your children are being raised, remember, to learn two basic concepts that you have to teach them. Uh, the two basic concepts that every child has to learn are the concepts of authority and love. And they begin to learn these concepts when they're very tiny children. They begin to learn them when they're still babes in arms. They're learning what it is to be loved, and they're learning what it is to be subject to authority. You think about these two ideas. These are the very concepts that, that, that form the foundation of our very, our very understanding of who God is. Our, our very relationship with Almighty God, our Father, uh, are based upon these concepts of love and authority. And in God, these, these concepts are not separated. They are united. We think of God as a loving Father. He has authority over us, but His authority is there as an expression of His love to us. And so it is in the home. The authority of the mother and the authority of the father must be very real to the child, but it must always be connected in the child's mind with the father's love and the mother's love for that child, and exercised out of a genuine love for the child. <clears throat> if the child thinks that you're disciplining him or her out of anger, rage, self-interest, uh, your own laziness, whatever it might be, if you're imposing things upon the child, the child and his understanding can misunderstand that. But again, you have to enable the child to understand that your motivation genuinely is love. Love for God and love for them. If you've raised them this way from the earliest years, then you won't have to hide behind the veil of, well, it's imprudent because they might react badly to this and use that as a cover for cowardice on your part. So I, I encourage you <coughs> to practice these virtues of, of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance when it comes to 
talking about the standards of modesty for your children and your family from the earliest years. And get them thinking about these things too. Get them thinking in this way, in terms of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. One could write volumes. One could write uh, not only volumes, but a library worth of books on the subject of this. I'm sorry, uh, I probably said too much, uh, perhaps on the subject here, and seemingly getting off the subject. But I really do think that this is the fundamental issue as to why parents have trouble teaching their children how to be modest, that they do not lay the foundation for modesty in, in raising the children with these virtues. And I think that's where it has to begin, right there. And this actually brings us to the last question. Um, maybe our girls aren't seeing the all-enticing image of Our Lady in us. And we must work on that by consecrating ourselves to her and increasing devotion. And that actually uh, concludes the questions that I have before me here. <clears throat> that gets down to the matter of virtue again. <clears throat> ultimately, uh, the model of virtue for every girl, every lady, every woman, is our Blessed Mother herself. She is the, the model. <clears throat> she is the apotheosis of womanly virtue. <clears throat> and the girls need to see that. They need to see Our Lady standing before them. They need to learn to love her and admire her. They need to see her virtues, and they need to want to practice those virtues, to imitate Our Lady, to resemble her. I mentioned faith and hope and charity, the theological virtues. I mentioned the moral virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Well, here in Our Blessed Mother, you have the apotheosis of these practice of these virtues here on earth. Our Lady has to be held up to them as their model of virtue. <clears throat> and they have to be raised with such a great love for our Blessed Mother <clears throat> as the model <clears throat> of true femininity, the very model of what God intended womanhood to be. <clears throat> and every girl must strive to follow her, strive to be like her. <clears throat> so that all you have to do <clears throat> is mention to your daughters <clears throat> that our Blessed Mother would not approve of this that uh, this, is, this would offend and, uh, and insult Our Lady for them to wear such a thing. That here they go around, the girls go around wearing the scapular, and yet they dress also in this very immodest way, um, flaunting themselves and emphasizing, as I say, what makes them female, <clears throat> just like any animal, rather than what is feminine, like our Blessed Mother. <clears throat> and if they're wearing anything that they is so immodest that they, they can't wear a scapular with it, because the scapular would somehow get in the way, or perhaps stick out, stand out too much because there's nothing there, well, that tells you something. If they have to <clears throat> take off the scapular, in order to wear what they wear. That is basically taking off their Catholic uniform, the uniform of a Catholic girl, a Catholic lady. <clears throat> and that is joining the enemy, putting on the uniform of the enemy. <clears throat> if, on the other hand, they want to wear that scapular, <clears throat> well, that's the first item of clothing, and that has to dictate everything else they wear. 
and what they don't wear. Uh, <clears throat> if they're going to wear the scapular, as you have to teach them to love that scapular, as the livery of our Blessed Mother, then they have to wear the clothes that uh, complement that scapular. <clears throat> teach them that allegiance to our Blessed Mother. Have them consecrate themselves to the earliest in the earliest years to Our Lady. Consecrate your family. Pray the prayer of consecration of your family to our Blessed Mother. Let the children grow up hearing those words long before they can even spell them, long before they can even pronounce them. Have your children learn that prayer by heart before they can even read one of those words. <clears throat> and, and continue to pray that daily, that act of consecration to Our Lady, teaching the meaning of it, not just to, to, to memorize it, let it not only be learned, as it were, by heart, but let it actually be taken to heart by your children. And you won't have to battle with them over <clears throat> questions of modesty. They themselves will be able to form their own right decisions on the basis of the conscience that you've given them, that you've formed in them. There are standards of right and wrong that are not just yours, but now they're their standards of right and wrong. And you can be very proud of them and you can trust them. There's nothing worse than raising a young man or a young woman. Well, you can't call them a young man or one young woman if you can't trust them. <clears throat> they can only be young men and young women if you can trust them. If you can't trust them, they're still boys and girls. But imagine raising a, a young fellow and a young lady, a young girl... <clears throat> they get to be 16, 17 years old, and you say, I cannot trust my son. I cannot trust my daughter. If I let them out of my sight, I don't know what they're going to be saying. I don't know what they're going to be doing. If I let them go off with their friends, I don't know what they're going to be wearing. <clears throat> what a terrible situation. You never want to be in a situation like that. If you find yourself in a situation like that, then something went wrong. You want to bring your children to that age where you can trust them. And uh, they may let you down at times. <clears throat> and you might well be disappointed in them. Nobody's perfect. But the fact is, if they do let you down, they will themselves <clears throat> chastise themselves for it. They will feel very badly about it. Guilty, and they should. And you want them to be able to feel that because they feel responsible that they betrayed, betrayed your trust and that they have betrayed your love for them. And it's because they love you and respect you. They feel badly that they did that. And they repent of it sincerely. And they're better for it because they come away with a stronger resolve now to be faithful to our Lord, faithful to you, and to be faithful to themselves, their own consciences. So ask our Lord for the grace of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, Ask our Lord for the great gift of wisdom that you need in able to raise your children to have faith and hope and charity, <clears throat> be prudent and just and brave and temperate in the way they dress. May God bless you all.